Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Dr. Maurice Shahan wiped the sweat from his forehead with the back of his hand and trudged onwards. After hiking through the Kenyan jungle for hours, he was starting to get delirious, but he had to be getting close. Finally, he spotted a sliver of light filtering through the trees. He mustered his last ounce of strength and moved onward. When he reached the clearing, a camouflage-clad officer greeted him and led him to a small hut nearby. Inside, Dr. Shahan saw a knee-high fridge hooked up to a generator. It didn't look like much, but Shahan knew its contents were priceless. He watched as the camouflaged officer slipped a mask over his nose and mouth. Shahan followed suit, put on medical gloves, and rolled his sleeves down to cover any exposed skin. Safety was paramount. Shahan's heart raced as the officer unlocked the fridge, pulled out a tray of vials filled with a yellow liquid, and placed them on a table. The doctor picked up one vial and examined it in the light. He smiled, thinking about what this could mean for his work. But for now, he put the vial back, placed the tray on a cushion, and put the cushion in a steel box labeled property of the U.S. government. He secured the box with multiple locks and checked them twice. He knew he had a long journey home, and if any of the liquids seeped out, the consequences would be disastrous. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Plum Island, an animal disease center off the coast of Long Island. Plum Island scientists spent decades researching treatments for rare conditions like foot and mouth disease and African swine fever. But some people allege the laboratory is doing more than trying to cure ailments. Some suggest they may be creating them. 
This time, we'll explore the island's evolution from biological warfare base to research facility. We'll follow the outbreak that almost shuttered Plum Island forever and the hurricane that nearly destroyed its facility. Next time, we'll discuss three conspiracy theories related to Plum Island. Some theorists believe the center had sinister beginnings as a haven for a Nazi scientist. Others claim Lyme disease was first created and spread by the laboratory. Still others say it's the birthplace of a legendary East Coast monster. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After the Geneva Protocol of 1925 prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons in battle, the world's most powerful nations had to get creative. They needed to find another way to weaken their enemies. This led to germ warfare, or the use of bacteria and viruses to kill people or incapacitate another country's food supply. By the onset of World War II in 1939, countries like the United Kingdom and Japan had already started to weaponize infectious diseases like anthrax and the bubonic plague. But the United States, which had spent the last decade recovering from the Great Depression, was playing catch-up. While they had stockpiles of chemical weapons, the U.S. rushed to establish research bases to conduct their own germ warfare testing on livestock and crops. In 1945, the war ended, but the research in the States didn't stop. Many believed it couldn't. The Soviet Union had emerged as a new superpower on the other side of the world. And as the Cold War ramped up, U.S. officials feared the communist nation would use germ warfare on America. The United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, recognized this threat. They pleaded with Congress to fund a research facility dedicated to studying agricultural diseases. They argued that if the U.S. wanted to protect itself from the Soviet Union, 
they needed to prepare for the possibility of a bio-war. In April 1948, Congress heeded their warning and agreed to establish a research center. The USDA and the U.S. military would work in tandem to study animal diseases to prevent them on American soil, while simultaneously inventing ways to weaponize them. There was one condition. The lab couldn't be connected to the mainland U.S. in any way. They couldn't risk a fatal disease spreading throughout the continent. So the USDA tasked architects with finding the right location. They needed something small, secluded, and most importantly, untouched by civilization. In the end, they decided upon a little piece of land off the New England coast, two miles away from New York, called Plum Island. It seemed like the perfect place for a lab. But not everyone was excited about the prospect. Residents of Long Island who lived nearby were outraged. They worried the center would become a source of pollution. Or worse, it would accidentally spread infectious diseases to their neighborhoods. Ailments like foot and mouth disease, for example. Foot and mouth disease, or FMD, primarily affects livestock like cattle, pigs, and sheep. Animals with FMD develop blister-like sores all over their mouth and body before rapidly losing weight and, in many cases, dying. The most concerning part of the disease is its contagion rate. It can spread through contact, clothing, and air particles. If FMD were to reach the mainland, it could kill millions of animals and destroy the United States' entire livestock industry. The officials in charge of creating the research facility wanted to avoid such a catastrophe at all costs. After architects identified Plum Island as a potential location, Army surveyors assessed the region. The results were promising. The prevailing winds blew out to the Atlantic Ocean, so if there was ever a leak at the facility, the germs would likely head out toward open water. It wasn't foolproof, but it was a good sign. These findings did little to calm local residents, though. Despite protests, the USDA forged ahead. The Secretary of Agriculture ordered construction to begin in 1952, but the remote nature of Plum Island made for some logistical nightmares. Because there were no tunnels or roads connecting the island to the mainland, construction companies relied on ferries to transport equipment and personnel. It was slow moving from the start, and when the ferry's longshoremen went on strike, construction ground to a halt. To add to their woes, the USDA had trouble hiring scientists to work at the facility. The long commute and half-finished buildings weren't exactly enticing. Without a completed lab or a full staff, the military grew impatient. They started to question whether the U.S. even needed an animal disease center. The Soviet Union had recently tested its first atomic bomb, and officials figured if another war broke out, it would probably be fought with nuclear weapons, not germ warfare. In 1954, the Army withdrew their support from Plum Island, and the labs became the sole property of the Department of Agriculture. This meant the facility would no longer study how to weaponize diseases, only how to cure them. It also meant the Department of Defense withdrew its financial support from the facility. 
Without that additional funding, the USDA needed to work quickly to get Plum Island off the ground and justify its sizable budget. Luckily, around this time, the longshoremen called off their strike and construction picked up. Within a couple years, Plum Island was open and had its first director. Dr. Maurice Shahan worked as a scientist for the USDA throughout the 1940s. He was tall, charming, and fearless, which was good. As director of Plum Island, he'd be experimenting with rare diseases like FMD and African swine fever, or ASF. Much like FMD, ASF is airborne and extremely contagious. It primarily affects pigs and produces lesions, a high fever, and makes it difficult for the animals to breathe and eat, and often leads to death by suffocation or starvation. Shahan knew how important it was to keep these kinds of deadly diseases away from the mainland, and he spared no precaution. He refused to let anyone who didn't work at the facility set foot on the island. It didn't matter if they were a high-ranking military official or a well-known germ warfare researcher. If they weren't one of the 400 employees with security clearance, they couldn't come close to the lab. Shahan practically handpicked each and every staff member. Some were locals. Others were well-respected scientists. But there were rumors that some came from previously Nazi-occupied Germany. Regardless of where the staff came from, everyone had to adhere to Shahan's safety standards. After they took the ferry to the island and set foot in the facilities, they were expected to remove all of their street clothes and take a thorough shower. Then, they would change into coveralls and white sneakers that remained on Plum Island at all times. Only then were they allowed to proceed to their specific appointments. If a visitor did somehow manage to sneak into Plum Island facilities, they would have seen its bizarre happening. Cows getting injected with drugs that would leave them paralyzed for hours. Goats standing with their necks between metal stanchions waiting to be experimented on. Staff euthanizing disease-ridden animals before sending them down a chute and into an incinerator. But in the 50s, an outsider sneaking into Plum Island's facilities didn't happen often, or ever. Security was as tight as the safety precautions. Dr. Shahan required the researchers and technicians who worked with any animals to take another shower before leaving the facility. Some scientists took as many as 8 to 10 showers a day. At least one claimed to have taken a whopping 23 showers in a single shift. The rules continued after work ended. As employees walked to the ferry, a bright yellow sign reminded them they were prohibited from coming in contact with certain animals. This list included cattle, poultry, hamsters, pet birds, rabbits, and more. As long as Shahan was around, everything at Plum Island had protocols and safety measures. This included the method in which the viruses were transported to the facility. Shahan often traveled overseas to bring back rare disease samples. During one trip, he trekked through the Kenyan jungle until he reached a secret U.S. Army base. There, he collected rinderpest, also known as cattle plague. He flew the disease all the way to London in a locked and sealed container. 
Since it was against U.S. law to bring viruses to the mainland, Shahan sailed with the Rinderpest across the Atlantic Ocean in a U.S. Navy freighter, then took a tugboat to Plum Island. Shahan and other scientists repeated this process for years without issue. As long as he was at the helm, Plum Island retained its sterling image. But when a change in leadership took place, the facility became one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Coming up, Plum Island's first outbreak. Listeners, I have a very special announcement. Parcast is releasing its first book on July 12th, and you can help us celebrate. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. This book was written for the fans, so to commemorate its launch, Parcast will be throwing some exclusive in-person and online events featuring popular true crime hosts such as Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie, Christine and M from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Just visit parcast.com slash cults for event dates, locations, and how to sign up. See your favorite true crime authors and podcasters discuss the cults book and have a chance to participate in live Q&As. These events have limited space, so don't miss out. RSVP today. None of this would be possible without your support, so we truly hope you'll join us. Pre-order your copy of Cults and sign up for upcoming events at parcast.com slash cults. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. In 1963, Dr. Maurice Shahan retired after nine years as Plum Island's director. The USDA replaced him with a man named Jerry Callis. The 37-year-old scientist started at Plum Island 10 years prior and showed an unmatched devotion to the facility's mission. When he became director, he longed to instill the passion he had in his employees. Because of the nature of the research being done at Plum Island, the workplace often felt sterile and unwelcoming. Callis wanted to change that. He encouraged open communication, praised his subordinates when they excelled, and even arranged yearly family picnics. During his first few years as director, he hired over a dozen people just to maintain the flower beds and sweep the roads. While Shahan had forbidden outsiders from stepping foot on the island, Callis was more lax with protocols. On occasion, he allowed outside visitors and once even welcomed a neighbor's niece and her classmates for a birding expedition. 
For 15 years, life on Plum Island was mostly smooth sailing. Callis dealt with the occasional controversy about disease control, but by and large, it remained the pride and joy of the USDA. Until 1978. On the morning of September 15, 1978, lab technician Billy Dorosky slumped in his seat as he rode the Plum Island Ferry to work. Dorosky had been out drinking the night before and felt like he was going to be seasick at any moment. As he thought about the workday ahead of him, he felt even worse. In his role at Plum Island, Dorosky injected animals with virus samples, drew blood, and examined the facility's livestock. That day, Plum Island was hosting a seminar on the bovine herpes mammalitis virus. Dorosky was supposed to administer doses of the virus to a group of cows during the meeting to later be observed. After getting off the ferry, Dorosky headed to lab number 257. There, he showered, changed into coveralls, and walked to the animal cubicle. His head thumped as he held a pack of syringes and opened the door. When he stepped inside, his tired eyes shot wide open. Drool and foam dripped from the cow's mouths. The animals stumbled around the stall. It looked like they'd already been injected with some sort of illness. Dorosky figured he must have walked into the wrong room in his hungover state, so he double-checked the assignment on his clipboard. It confirmed he was in the right place. He looked at the cows again. Something had gone horribly wrong. Dorosky phoned the scientist leading the seminar and asked him to come right away. He arrived minutes later and inspected the cows. Their mouths and hooves were covered in blisters. He called Plum Island's director, Jerry Callis, who instructed the doctor to take a few samples and analyze them. Within hours, they identified the disease infecting the cows, and it wasn't the one they were supposed to discuss at the seminar. Their worst fears had come true. They had foot and mouth disease. Callis gathered the top Plum Island officials in his office for a last minute meeting. On his desk sat a copy of the 1969 Emergency Operations Manual. They hadn't needed a new one in nine years. He broke the news to his staff. There was only one way to protect the island in the event of an FMD outbreak. The manual instructed them to, as author Michael C. Carroll put it, destroy every living animal on the island except humans. There were no objections from anyone. But before they could deal with the animals, Callus needed to figure out what to do with the people. He had to ensure that every staff member was disease-free before they left the island. Safety crews traveled from lab to lab gathering up belongings. This included street clothes, watches, jewelry, and wallets. Employees were allowed to keep their car keys and glasses, but only after they were soaked in an acid bath first. Each employee was given a new set of white coveralls and white tennis shoes to put on. Then, they were ushered into packed containment rooms, where they waited for further instructions. Hours passed until the call came from Callis. Around 8 p.m., the staff was told they could go home. They filed onto the ferry and made the journey back to land. But a 35-man cleanup crew remained on the island. Their day 
wasn't done just yet. The crew made a list of all the animals on the island, including 94 cattle, 87 pigs, 66 lambs, 28 rabbits, 27 chickens, and six horses. They removed the animals from their pens and placed them in a secure room. Then the staff sprayed everything down, thoroughly cleaned the area, and as always, took a shower. Meanwhile, one of the remaining veterinarians pulled blood samples and took slivers of flesh from the creatures for later testing. When he was finished, he ushered them onto the killing floor. The furnace staff usually cremated animals once every other week. This time, they work through the weekend. One worker described the smell to Michael Carroll as, quote, roast beef left on high heat for eight hours, then left out rotting for eight more. As the carcass smoke rose from the chimney, the rest of the cleaning staff donned fishing hats and rubber suits as they disinfected every surface on the island. It took them three days to sanitize everything. When they were finally finished, they burned the animals' hay, straw, and food in a bonfire. By Monday, Plum Island was covered in so much ash it looked like it had been hit by a snowstorm. Now that the disease had been contained, Callis turned to an even more daunting task, informing the press. He released a statement saying Plum Island had experienced its first outbreak ever. When the news hit the papers, the USDA descended on the facility. They ordered Callis to stop calling it an outbreak. They worried it would affect American meat exports. Instead, he and his staff were instructed to call it the incident. Over the next six days, scientists from Washington, D.C.'s Emergency Disease Organization, or EDO, tried to track down the source of the incident. They didn't know if it was transported to the island from elsewhere or if it had traveled from a research facility into the quarantined lab. EDO officials flipped open the directory and started working the phones. They called employees, construction workers, anyone who'd visited the facility before September 15th. They asked if they'd been in contact with animals at zoos, pet stores, or farms, but none had. As the EDO struggled to come up with answers, an even more pressing question emerged. Had the disease spread beyond the island? All of the employees and their belongings had been thoroughly sanitized before getting on the ferry, but it was still possible someone hadn't been diligent enough. Officials traveled to nearby farms and zoos to see if the animals showed any sign of FMD. They all appeared to be normal. The outbreak looked as if it had truly been contained, but Plum Island's reputation was permanently damaged. Following the incident, government officials questioned its worth. While the facility conducted valuable research, maybe the risks outweighed the rewards. In order for Callis to keep Plum Island up and running, the center needed a major breakthrough to justify its existence. They needed something big. Luckily, they had Dr. Howard Backrack. Dr. Backrack had a long and successful history of studying diseases. In the 1950s, He isolated the polio virus, which paved the way for Jonas Salk to create a polio vaccine. 
Decades later, in 1975, Backrack was the chief scientist at Plum Island, where he focused his efforts on finding a cure for FMD. Over the course of his work, he managed to isolate a subunit protein called VP3. When injected into a pig, VP3 managed to protect the animal from foot and mouth disease. It was a huge breakthrough, but unfortunately, at the time, Backrack didn't have the technology to mass-produce the protein. But when FMD broke out on Plum Island three years later, Backrack knew he had to find a way to multiply VP3 at all costs. It was their only hope of protecting the nation's livestock industry. Then, Backrack heard about a new process called gene splicing. Essentially, gene splicing involves cutting off a portion of a piece of DNA and inserting one organism's gene sequence into another organism's genome. Gene splicing was first intended to reproduce insulin for diabetics, but Backrack had an idea. He wondered if he could employ the same practice to mass-produce VP3. Backrack and a team of assistants worked for seven weeks straight, replicating the subunit protein. At the end of the process, they injected VP3 into healthy cows and pigs. They guided those animals into a room filled with FMD-ridden swine and waited. Ten days later, Backrack checked on the animals. He examined them for blisters or foaming at the mouth, but none showed any symptoms of FMD. The team pulled blood samples to be sure. They showed no signs of an infection. Backrack had done it. It was the first time gene splicing had ever been used to create a vaccine, and it had neutralized a strain of FMD. The discovery made the front page of the New York Times, and a few years later, President Ronald Reagan awarded Backrack the National Medal of Science. The vaccine wasn't just a big deal for Backrack, it was instrumental in shaping Plum Island's future. Their chief scientist had just proven how necessary the lab really was. But not everyone was convinced. In fact, some thought it was high time Plum Island be shuttered for good. Coming up, Plum Island transforms. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1981, Plum Island's chief scientist, Howard Backrack, created the first vaccine for a strain of foot and mouth disease. Facility director Jerry Callis hoped the breakthrough would improve the lab's less than stellar image. But just two years later, the National Academy of Sciences released a scathing report about the facility and its operations. They argued that while Backrack's discovery was certainly important, it was an anomaly. The Academy alleged that, on the whole, Plum Island had made minimal contributions to the scientific community, and they believed the low output wasn't enough to justify the costs. 
they recommended that Plum Island be shut down for good. A few years later, the center's budget was cut by 5%. We don't know if this decision had anything to do with the Academy's report, but the government clearly reassessed their previous investments. Just a few days after the cut, the USDA called Callis and essentially told him it was time to retire. After 25 years leading Plum Island, they wanted someone new. They wanted Washington State University professor Roger Breeze. During his time at the university's veterinary school, Breeze did everything in his power to make the microbiology department the best it could be. This included procuring the most advanced equipment, hiring the top experts, and slashing unnecessary expenses. The USDA hoped Breeze could do the same at Plum Island. While Callis saw the staff as a family, the government wanted them to run more like a machine. In 1987, Breeze took over and started cutting costs right away. He and his accountant redlined anything that wasn't absolutely necessary, including overstock supplies, the landscaping budget, and certain staff members' roles. Six months into his reign, Breeze fired four scientists who'd been at Plum Island for decades. He didn't think they were committed to publishing new work. In fact, he thought Plum Island would benefit from a management overhaul. Since its opening in 1954, the facility has been owned by the USDA and, by extension, the U.S. government. As director, Callis argued that Plum Island couldn't fall under a company's control because their experiments were too critical to be contracted out. A private business might value profits over safety. Breeze didn't seem to share Callis's concerns, however. In 1991, he allowed the Burns and Rowe Services Corporation to purchase a contract with Plum Island. While Plum Island still technically remained a part of the government, the facility now had a vested interest in the corporation's bottom line. When the staff heard about the deal, they knew it meant layoffs. And sure enough, the day after the acquisition was announced, representatives from Burns and Rowe called a facility-wide meeting. Hundreds of employees were handed sealed envelopes and told not to open them until after the meeting. When they looked later, they found thick packets detailing their severance packages. They'd been let go. A lab that once staffed almost 400 employees was now down to 100. With so few people monitoring the facility, cutting corners became a necessity, one that came with dire consequences. Around midnight on August 18, 1991, 44-year-old Philip Pagari rode the ferry to Plum Island, where he worked on the maintenance crew. Every night, he and his team regulated the airflow and made sure the negative pressure system continued to function properly. Pagari also monitored dozens of freezers that held dangerous virus specimens. The trip to Plum Island was usually pleasant, but tonight, the boat rocked violently as ocean waves slapped the hull. A storm was forecast to hit later that night. The weather report warned that it might turn into a hurricane. And before long, it looked all but certain. Hurricane Bob was headed for the island. As Pagari checked the air valves, raindrops pelted the building. The wind picked up. Thunder roared. 
By 9.30 a.m., 100-mile-per-hour winds slammed into the buildings and knocked over the island's electrical poles. The entire facility went dark. Normally, Plum Island was powered by an underground cable, but it had been damaged three months earlier. To save money, the facility's new administration decided not to fix it. The lab had been running on emergency power ever since. So when the power lines went down, the electricity went with them, and the lab had no backup generator. Pagari and his crew were left to clean up the mess in the dark. Pagari was usually headed home by now, but with the storm raging, there was no way a ferry could make it to the island. Plus, he had bigger problems on his hands. Sewage was building up. The island's animal waste normally drained into a two-tank system, where a second tank automatically opened when the first was full. But the second tank was electric-powered, and now, without any energy, it couldn't open. Pagari and another worker checked the gauge on the first tank. It was full. An emergency valve opened and sewage burst out of the container and onto the floor around their feet. The men gagged as they rushed to put on gloves and rubber boots. Pagari fumbled around the dark until he found a hose. He hooked it up to the overflowing tank and ran it into the second, hoping that would solve the problem. But as Pagari gave his partner a thumbs up, an alarm blared. The freezers. The freezers on the island had to be kept at minus 158 degrees Fahrenheit. Any higher, and the disease samples inside would activate, attach to air particles, and search for a host. The alarm meant the temperature was rising. Pagari ran to the freezers and saw the samples inside dripping to the floor. He fumbled around the lab, looking for the canister they usually filled with liquid nitrogen. If he could fill it up and hook it up to the freezers, he could possibly get the temperature back to normal. But Pagari couldn't find the canister anywhere. It seemed that the new administration's lax attitude had affected more than the building's electricity. There was only one thing Pagari could do now. He and his co-workers grabbed mops and started pushing the liquid into wastewater drains. They spent over 24 hours trying to prevent catastrophe and keep Plum Island afloat. Eventually, the hurricane blew past and Pagari and his co-workers went home. A month later, the maintenance crew received a letter of commendation from the USDA for their efforts. Then, the same day the letter arrived, they received another message from Plum Island saying they were being laid off. Shortly after, Pagari developed flu-like symptoms. He had a blood test done at the local hospital to try and figure out what was going on, but they couldn't diagnose what was wrong. Pagari requested that Plum Island scientists analyze his blood. He had a feeling that whatever he was experiencing was connected to the lab. But when he reached out, the facility refused to help him. He told author Michael Carroll that his symptoms persisted for the next six years before subsiding as suddenly and mysteriously as they came on. As far as we can tell, Plum Island officials never acknowledged his complaints. For the next decade, the facility remained up and running. 
But after September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush launched a massive reorganization of the federal government. In 2003, he moved Plum Island from the control of the Department of Agriculture to the Department of Homeland Security. The DHS brought back Dr. Shahan's stringent level of security, and then some. Armed soldiers monitored the shoreline, making sure nobody could get in and nothing got out. To many, it seemed like this was about more than safety. It looked like they were guarding national secrets. Plum Island has always maintained that its only aim is to prevent disease. But maybe there's more going on behind the facility's red doors than the government says. Next time, we'll explore three conspiracy theories surrounding Plum Island. Like conspiracy theory number one, that the facility originally served as a safe haven for a former Nazi scientist. Conspiracy theory number two, Plum Island was responsible for the creation and spread of Lyme disease. And conspiracy theory number three, that the laboratory wasn't just experimenting with animals, they were breeding monsters. Who knows? Plum Island could be the Area 51 of the East. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Plum Island, amongst the many sources we used, we found Michael Christopher Carroll's book, Lab 257, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at ParCast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before details which haven't even been explored in our cults podcast visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them